We are up to mitzvah number 49. Today we're going to cover six interrelated mitzvahs. Mitzvah number 49, 51, 52, 53, 55, and 56. And these are all mitzvahs that relate to damages. 49 is the personal damages. What happens when someone injures or damages someone else physically? There are several mitzvahs that relate to an animal damages, meaning I own an animal, the animal's my property, and my property goes and damages your property. That's 51 and 55. And then we have the law of an inert damage caused by one person to the other. So the way this is described is a pit. If I dig a pit or a ditch or a hole, and of course that is immobile, doesn't move, but someone could come and trip on it or fall into it and be damaged. And then we have the non-animal but mobile damage, mitzvah number 56, and that is described as a fire. If I make a fire, even though it's not an animal, but it is it is movable and my I can light a fire, I can have a bonfire in my backyard, and it could go burn down a whole city, and of course I'm responsible for that. And the final mitzvah we're going to cover today is mitzvah number 52, and that is not to eat from the slaughtered ox. And that's referring to a case where there was an ox, or any animal, that sadly went crazy, went wild, and it killed a person. And the law states that that animal has to be put down, it has to be euthanized. And no one can benefit from that animal. You can't slaughter it in a kosher way and say, you know what, they'll have at least several steaks for dinner. No, you cannot consume from the flesh of a slaughtered ox if the ox is being slaughtered because of it killing a person. Now, I want to give a quick disclaimer before we dig into these mitzvos that these subjects, I think to the modern ear, sounds a little bit like an unusual case that will never happen. You know, most of us don't own farm animals. Of course, there are farmers amongst the Mitzvah podcast audience. But most of us live in more modern economies and modern societies, and we don't have farm animals. We don't have oxen. But we know in the past it was quite common for people to have it. But moreover, I think that there's a sharp difference between someone who has had the privilege to study the Talmud extensively, or certainly someone who has been in yeshiva, there's a distinction between that kind of person and someone who has never been to yeshiva, never studied Talmud in a rigorous and extensive fashion. Because these laws that relate to damages, they comprise much of a book of Talmud called Bavakama. And it's one of the first books that traditionally young students in yeshiva spend their time studying, and many of them revisit it as they advanced through the ranks and as they progressed throughout the yeshiva career. And those of us that have studied Bavakama in a yeshiva, when we talk about animals doing damage, it's likely to evoke some modicum of nostalgia. Some of my personal best years studying were focused on these items. What happens when an animal damages another animal? And we've spent months studying the intricacies of these laws, trying to get to the depths of the Talmud, 
even writing essays on the related Talmudic teachings and the commentaries. And looking back at these mitzvos, it's an absolute fond experience. While I would imagine that for others, this sounds so impractical, it may sound like a bore, it's a waste of time, because these things are not very relevant. And I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind, that when we study these laws, we study the Talmud, we're trying to go deep and deeper and deeper levels, and it's almost as if the actual study is divorced from the idea, the notion of an animal causing damage to another animal, we're trying to really get into the wisdom that's baked into, of course, every teaching of the Talmud. Today, of course, we're not going to cover all of that. What we spent months and months studying in yeshiva, we're going to cover in 20, 30 minutes to give just a short snapshot of these mitzvahs. But I want to add another point that I think in this particular set of mitzvahs, it does show an example of the oral Torah at work. And what I mean by that is that whenever something is canonized, it's given a certain degree of rigidity. If you're going to present a law, you have to give an example of that law. You can't just convey those principles. And therefore, you know, lawyers, when they go to law school, a lot of what they study is what's called case law. They look at extant cases, and those cases contain principles or precedents that can be extrapolated and ported over to other cases, meaning that the case provides a principle and a precedent that can be used in other areas, in other cases of law. And that's the problem when trying to codify law is that you can't say just an abstract idea. You have to kind of root it in a particular case. And we think about damages. You know, how much damages do we have today? We have personal injury, of course. That's still present. But we have people doing identity theft. That didn't exist several thousand years ago. You had what was common, which is animals damaging other animals. And the study of the oral Torah is to try to deduce from these cases, many of the cases are obsolete in the modern world, to deduce those principles and try to extrapolate them to modern cases that could be entirely different than the ones that are presented in the Talmud and in the Torah. Okay, so that's a little bit of introduction to the laws of damages. Let's begin with mitzvah number 49, and that is the mitzvah that the court has to adjudicate cases of personal injury, meaning when one person physically injures another person. And the general principle of this is that we believe in in an idea called tit for tat, if you damage someone else, you have to pay for that, you have to recompense that, you have to make him whole and pay up for the damage. Now, it's important to stress that even though in several places in the Torah it says the term an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an an arm for an arm, a leg for a leg, no one contends that that means literally if someone gouges someone else's eye out, their eye gets gouged out. Rather, the Talmud proves quite conclusively that it is a reference to a monetary 
penalty. And the idea behind this mitzvah and behind this concept in general is that a necessary precondition for any functioning society is that you have to have justice. We cannot live in a world in which people could injure other people, damage other people, afflict pain to other people with impunity, and therefore there has to be this in any functioning society. Now, in Torah law, when someone strikes and injures another person, there are five different categories of penalties and payments that they must pay to the person that they injure. Number one, damage. If that person sustains permanent damage, that has to be paid. Number two, pain. If there was pain that was incurred, that also must be part of the penalty that's imposed upon the aggressor. Number three, healing. You have to pay for the medical bills. Number four, unemployment. The person wasn't working due to their injuries. You caused those injuries. Therefore, you have to pay that. And finally, shame. The humiliation of the injury, that too is part of the assessed damage of a person injuring another person. Now, there are many different laws, of course, with these mitzvahs. We're just going to give a, a few, a little bit, a little taste, a little sprinkling of some of the Talmudic teachings on these laws. So the Talmud tells us that with respect to shame and humiliation, it all depends upon who was the one who caused the shame and who was the recipient of that shame. If I injure someone who's a homeless vagabond, obviously that does not convey, that does not cause as much shame as if I cause damage and I shame the mayor. You know, the mayor is a respectable person. He has stature in the community. And therefore, when I injure him and I cause him shame, that same wound is going to be amplified. The payment that I'm going to have to give to the victim is amplified when the victim is of higher stature. Whereas when the opposite were to happen, meaning the perpetrator is a more distinguished person, then there is less shame. Meaning if the mayor hits me, that's not as bad as if the homeless person, the lowlife, the vagabond, if they hit me, well, then there is more shame. And what the Talmud's telling us by this is that the court has to try to assess to the best of its ability, has to assess how much is the penalty for shame and has to take into account all these factors to determine what that appropriate number is. Now, some other interesting laws, we have the concept of intent. If there's no intent, then there is no shame. And therefore, if you have, let's say, a sleeping person and the sleeping person causes damage, even though the sleeping person is liable for the damage that they caused in their sleep, why? The Talmud says, a person is always responsible for their behavior, even if they're sleeping. Why? They should have prepared for it and not slept in a way or in a place that could have conveyed damage if they're more of a mobile and itinerant sleeper. That said, a sleeper cannot convey a wound or an injury or damage that causes a penalty of shame because, of course, a sleeper has no intent. And when there's no intent, there is no shame. However, a sleeper 
can be ashamed and can, if someone injures a sleeping person, they may have to pay the shame penalty of these five components of the damage because they're going to find out about it afterwards and they're going to be ashamed post facto. There's an interesting question the Talmud says, well, what if the person dies? Is there a shame penalty to the inheritors, to the estate? What happens if you embarrass someone who's a child or someone who's an imbecile or someone who's a deaf mute? These are some of the laws that are discussed in the Talmud. One other interesting law is that if someone embarrasses someone else with words, so we may be familiar with the principle that if you whiten someone's face publicly, that is something which is akin to murder. Because when you embarrass someone publicly, their face initially gets flushed, and then it gets drained, and they turn white, and they turn like as white as a cadaver. And that is almost, to a certain extent, equivalent of murder. However, there is no shame penalty of this mitzvah, mitzvah number 49, only when there was a physical damage that contained a shame component. However, there is one exception, that there is a Torah scholar, in the event that someone shames a Torah scholar, then there would be a shame penalty for that damage. Okay, so those are some of the laws, and obviously it's clear that we're just giving a small sampling of some of these laws of these mitzvahs of damaging. Now, the next two mitzvahs that we're going to talk about, mitzvah number 51 and 55, relate to an animal causing damage. And this is going to fall into two categories. You have mitzvah number 51. That's an animal that damages willfully. Its intent is to cause damage. It gets angry. It gets mad. It starts goring or biting or crushing or kicking some other thing or some other animal, and it causes damage, and that has its particular set of laws. And myth number 55 is what happens when either the animal causes damages, but it doesn't even notice it. It tramples over something that's walking, and it doesn't even realize that there's some valuable or some food or some produce under its feet, doesn't even notice it, and it just walks over, it tramples it, damages it. That's one case, missing for 55. And the second is that the animal's intent is to enjoy, wants to eat. And it doesn't know, of course, that the food, the produce that it sees belongs to someone else. And it just eats it and its intent is to enjoy. And that is a second component of Mitzvah 55 when the animal damages with the intent of pleasure, of enjoying what it does, but it results in a damage to another person. Now, each one of these particular kinds of damage has its unique aspect of the mitzvah and how it's adjudicated that makes it a separate category. So, for example, mitzvah 51, an animal willfully, intentionally causes damage. So, we're under the impression, initially, that if you have a cow, you have a bull, you have an animal, it's a domesticated animal. And therefore, you have no reason to believe that the animal's going to go haywire and just out of the blue decide that it wants to go gore people and act crazy. Of course, there are some animals that are trained. You know, when it sees red, it it goes nuts. 
and tries to damage everything in sight. But if you just have your Betsy, you have your cow, you have no reason to assume, even though it's, you know, 1,500 pounds of muscle and, of course, other delicious things, but you have no reason to assume that it's going to act in a wild and intentionally damaging way. And therefore, the Torah tells us that the first time that it commits this intentional act of damage, you only need to pay half of the damage. And that cannot exceed the value of the animal. Meaning, your Betsy that does damage, you're capped at the value of the animal that caused the damage, and you only have to pay half of the damage. Whereas, if this happened once, it happened twice, it happened a third time, now this animal, we know for sure that it has more of an aggressive temperament, and therefore you have to pay full damage if it once again does an act of damage with intent, you have to pay full damage and to pay from the choicest of your assets, meaning even if the damage exceeds the value of the animal. The logic behind that is that, well, now you know it's behaved like this three times. You know this animal's proven that it's not just this docile, domesticated animal. It's wild. And therefore, you should have guarded it more vigilantly. And therefore, you are responsible for every penny of the damage that it incurs. Now, there's an interesting question that the Talmud poses, and I want to just share this because we can get a window into Talmudic analysis. The Talmud shares an interesting question as to what the logic of paying half of the damage in the event that the animal that we have no reason to assume is a wild animal or has any wild penchants it causes damage, you only pay half. So the Talmud tells us like this, half of damage that you pay, this is from the book of Baba Kama, page 15a. According to one opinion, it is a monetary payment, meaning you owe this money and therefore you pay, but you only owe half. According to the second opinion, it's not a monetary payment, it's a punitive fine. A fine is something that you're not, you don't really have to pay it from the monetary perspective, but it's something that's like a punishment, it's punitive, that it's a fine. It's something which is not related necessarily to what you did. It's something that is imposed upon you. And according to the first opinion that says it's a monetary payment, the logic behind it is that we assume that every animal, every ox, it really is wild. And therefore, you should have watched it. And the fact that you didn't watch it, it means that really you should pay the whole thing. Because after all, you cause damage, not you directly, but you vicariously via your animal. Your animal's wild. You don't know it necessarily, but all animals really are wild. And therefore, you should have justifiably paid the entire damage that your animal incurred. But the Torah, the Torah had mercy on you. And the Torah shaved off half of the monetary payment that you should have done. So really you should have paid 100% and half of it's cut off because after all, you didn't really know that this animal was wild. According to the second opinion, that it's not a monetary payment, it's a punitive fine. Well, then the 
assumption is the opposite. We assume that all oxen are just, again, by default, we can assume that they are guarded, that they're calm, that they're not acting wild. And therefore, really, you're not at all guilty or liable. You should, you should not be held liable for the damage that your animal did. Because after all, how could you be expected to stop the damage when we assume that the animal's not going to cause any damage? And therefore, you are not at all negligent. So really, you should pay nothing. And the Torah, in this case, is not shaving off the payment. It's adding a punitive fine of 50%. So that way, you will indeed guard your animal, even though you have no reason, no suspicion to believe that it is wild. So an interesting Talmudic analysis. Everyone agrees that when we don't know for sure, there's no evidence that the animal is wild, you pay 50%. But the question is what the logic of that is. Is it really to be 100, but half of it's shaved off? Or really to be zero, but half of it's imposed to force people or to compel people or to encourage people, incentivize people to guard their animals, even though they have no reason to believe that it's wild. Now, I want to add, again, there's many more detailed laws, like, for example, what happens when you have an animal that was assigned this classification, this designation, now it's wild, it could actually revert back to being the docile animal, meaning if the animal behaves in this particular way three times, okay, now we upgrade its status, now it's a wild animal, and therefore now you're going to pay 100%. But if the exact same scenario happens and the animal does not behave in a wild fashion, well, now it's reverted back to being the state of the animal that we assume is calm, and therefore you only pay 50%. But again, those laws are complicated, and look at the book of Babakama to get detailed laws on that. Mitzvah 55, that's the law of the animal that consumes something and therefore pays the damages, or it tramples over something, doesn't notice it, and pays the damage. And the critical component of this law is that it's not in a public domain, meaning if my animal is walking on Main Street and you happen to have left your items, your vessels, your food in the middle of the street and my animal either eats it or tramples over it, I'm not responsible to pay for that and therefore I'm not guilty or I'm not on the hook for paying for what was damaged, because after all, why did you leave your stuff in a public domain? That said, I pay for what I benefited, meaning suppose you put out very expensive artisanal bread in the public marketplace. It's priced at, let's say, $10 a loaf. My animal usually eats fodder or usually eats grass. It costs me, I don't know, 10 cents. But my animal sees your artisanal loaves and consumes them. I do have to pay you, but not what my animal damaged, not the $10, but what I benefited, the 10 cents, that now I no longer need to give the animal fodder to my animal. Again, there's more laws, but we're trying to give just a brief overview of these mitzvahs. The next one, mitzvah number 53, and that is the stationary hazard. Someone digs a pit, someone digs a ditch, various kinds of 
obstacles in a public domain, meaning if I have the pit in my backyard and you decide to take a stroll or your animal takes a stroll in my backyard, I am not guilty in that particular case. And I think this is something that could have relevance in modern times. Of course, you know, if someone leaves something in a place that other people could slip over it, the proverbial banana that someone slips over in the cartoons. But if someone, let's say, has construction debris, these laws may be quite relevant that we have to make sure to not leave something, a hazard in a public area that people could trip over, people could fall into, or property could be damaged. And under certain circumstances, we would be responsible for that damage. I want to add that this does not only apply to physical damage, you would imagine if there's spiritual damage or emotional or psychological damage, I shouldn't be a hazard to anyone, not to their property and not to their limbs and their well-being, but certainly not to their, you know, to their emotional side, to their psychological side, to their spiritual side. We don't want to be obstacles. We don't want to cause others to falter or to suffer because of us. And the final category of damage is mitzvah number 56, and that is fire. And the book of Abraham starts off that there's four general categories of damages, and these are the four mitzvahs that we have discussed. Now, with fire, the characteristics of fire would be someone who lights or causes something that travels on its own, but it's not a, a living thing. It's inanimate, and it's like, like a fire. And the unique law that relates to this is that you are not liable for things that are hidden. And the classic case is what happens if someone has a, uh, a bale of hay in their farm, and they decide that that's a good place to hide their valuables, because after all, who's rummaging through that? And they decide to put their valuables deep inside the bale of hay, and I am negligent, I light a fire next door, and my fire travels into my neighbor's yard, and it swallows up, it consumes, it engulfs that bale of hay that has something secret hidden in it, I'm not responsible for what's hidden inside of it. I'm only responsible for the hay or the hay equivalent of, uh, of what that would cost if that was hay. So that's one of the, one of the laws that are relevant to this particular category of damage. And I have to mention a very famous question that the Talmud poses in this particular mitzvah, in this particular category of damage and a follow-up question that the commentaries share. The Talmud again, as we saw earlier, the Talmud tries to understand, to analyze what is the depth, what is the thinking, what's the logic behind me being responsible for the fire that I light. After all, you're responsible for your actions, not for someone else's actions. And therefore, I light a fire, I lit a fire here. The fact that my fire went next door and consumed something that didn't belong to me. Well, that's not my fire. My fire was only here. The fire on its own traveled. Now, of course, we all recognize 
that, you know, you started it, so therefore you're guilty, you're responsible. But what's the logic behind it? What's the framing of me being responsible for fire that I start here, but travels there? So Talmud tells us, according to one opinion, the fire is your arrow. Just like when you shoot an arrow, I shoot an arrow here, it travels 100 yards yonder, I'm the original propelling force of that arrow, and therefore the entire distance of the arrow being shot, it's all my doing. Similarly, I make a fire. The fire is like the arrow. I start the fire. I'm shooting the arrow, and wherever the fire travels, all that is me, and it's my action, and therefore I'm responsible. That's one opinion the Talmud shares. The second opinion the Talmud shares is the fire is like your property. It's like your money. When I kindle a fire, well, I acquire a new item, this fire, and everything that the fire does, I'm liable to be responsible for. So just as if my animal goes haywire and causes damage, similarly, if my fire goes haywire and causes damage, I'm responsible. Now, one of the commentaries asked a very interesting question. They asked that according to the opinion that the fire is like my arrow, meaning it's as if I'm constantly doing this action, how would one be allowed to light the Shabbos candles before Shabbos? Why? You know, you're allowed to light a fire before Shabbos, but once Shabbos starts, you can no longer Kindle a fire. In fact, that's one of the 39 categories of work that's prohibited to do on Shabbos. Yet if we say philosophically that when I light a fire, I'm still connected to the activity, to the movement of the fire even after I've released it. So it's always as if I'm lighting a fire every second. And therefore, I light a fire in my domain, in my yard, my property, and it travels to my neighbor's yard, that's my action. That's my, I'm, I'm lighting a fire there. Well, similarly, you can't light a fire on Shabbos. You light it before Shabbos, but as the fire burns, as the candle is being consumed by the fire, I'm constantly involved, so to speak. I'm constantly doing it. And am I not making a fire on Shabbos? It's an interesting question that one of the Medieval commentators, the Nemut Yosef, in the book of Abakama, asks, interesting question, it's something worthwhile to think about. Finally, we have mitzvah number 52, and that is the prohibition against consuming the meat of the ox that is killed because it murdered a person. And that would apply, of course, not only to an ox, but any animal or any bird even that causes a death of a person, that animal cannot be consumed, even if it is slaughtered in kosher way. So you're going to kill it. You figure, hey, let me enjoy it. You cannot enjoy it because this animal caused damage. Now, what's the logic behind that? So the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we are using to go through the mitzvos, he tells us that we want to reinforce the concept that anything that causes damage, destruction, is something we want to distance. We want to be disgusted by it. Not only that, it's got to be disgusted by humans and even by God. And even if an animal accidentally 
kill something, it's something which is reviled. It's loathsome. And if we have to completely distance ourselves from it. In addition, he adds, as a result of this principle, it may help someone to make sure that their animal is guarded because you cannot even say that, you know what, if it causes damage or hurts someone, at least I'll be able to benefit from the meat. No, it'll be a total loss and that will help prevent the person from being a little bit lax in guarding the animal. Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya, one of the commentaries in the Torah, he adds something very fascinating. He says that there is another opinion, another explanation of this principle, and that is that we know the very first animal that caused death to humanity is the primordial serpent of the Genesis story. Our sages tell us that had Adam not sinned, he would have lived forever, Adam and Eve. And because of the sin that was inspired, that was caused to a large effect by the first serpent, that brought death and destruction, and that brought mortality to humanity. And he says, the Rebbein B'chai, quoting this other opinion, that any animal that causes the death of a human, that animal on a spiritual level contains a little bit of the force of the primordial serpent. And of course, in Jewish philosophy, we say that our objective is to try to combat the primordial serpent and anything that is related to it. And our sages tell us that the Yetzirah, that the, the force that's trying to get us to sin that's within us, is akin, shares the same characteristics of the primordial serpent. And therefore, we're trying to banish that. You certainly don't want to consume. You certainly don't want to imbibe. You don't want to absorb within you anything that is in any way related to that force, to that original serpent, to the things that we're put on this earth to try to combat. That's an idea as to why we would avoid eating from the flesh of an animal that killed a person. That was the last of the mitzvahs that we're covering today. Again, we have mitzvah number 49, the laws that relate to a human damaging another human. We have two mitzvahs that relate to an animal causing damage. The first one, Mitzvah number 51 is the animal that willfully, with intent, it gores, it bites. It is intentionally damaging something else. And then we have the two other cases in which the animal either doesn't doesn't notice it, tramples over it, or it's consuming for pleasure. And then we have the obstacles, the inert hazards that cause damage. We have the fire. And finally, we have the Mitzvah 52, not to eat from the slaughtered ox. Thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalbeyajima.com. I look forward to hearing from you soon. All the best.